welcome to Inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clydebilt Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP, from unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sager, Sally Milhook and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth Percent, a charity who is partnering with our show Inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Osmo Sheldrake. kick off the show, every day we'll be talking to Sally Mulhook, unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone where the climate negotiations take place. Sally Mulhook is a friend of the show and is one of the top scientists from Bangladesh on climate change science. He was recognised as one of the top 20 global influencers on climate change policy in 2019 and we are delighted to have him on the show. Welcome, Salim. <laughs> it's been so long since I'm gonna. I'm just gonna do, go straight ahead. It's been a long time coming that we met, and finally we're here, Indeed. sat in the Resilience Hub, having a conversation in real life. Absolutely. Yeah. So, nice to see you at last. I know. In real person. At long last. <laughs> um, yesterday we finished on a note that was kind of traumatizing for me to mm-hmm. think that. Maybe we'll never, we'll never make it, and we'll never, we'll never uh, be satisfied with the end of COP. But you also said that you're an internal optimist, so we were going to look into what was happening today. Is there any? Well, I have some actually very, very interesting, and I, I think very good news today. Oh, yes. Uh, which comes from our alternative host for COP26. Okay. You know? We are sitting right now in the blue zone, which is the United Nations Framework Convention area, where the host is Prime Minister Boris Johnson mm-hmm. and the president is Mr. Alok Sharma, who mm-hmm. just took over yesterday. Um, but this is only inside the blue zone with this highly tight security surrounding it with a few thousand people here. Mm-hmm. But our bigger host is the city of Glasgow yeah. and the country of Scotland. Yeah. And they've been very, very good and they're doing all kinds of things outside the blue zone, which are exciting and interesting and much more uh, positive than what's going to happen here in the blue zone. And so there's going to be youth people, the Greta Thunberg is here already, there's business people meeting in the different hotels, scientists meeting at the university, Caledonian University, Strathclyde University. Uh, indigenous people just had a very big event, which you went to, the Minga event, yeah. and many others going on at the same time. Tens of thousands of people have come here who are not inside the Blue Zone. They're outside 
having their own COP. I call it the COP of the people, the Conference of People. This one's the Conference of the UN Framework Convention. Mm. Now, one of the things with this Conference of People is it's very disparate. There are very many different groups and you have to take a lot of time and effort to follow them, get to know them, know what they're doing. There's not one big apex thing like this one is. Um, on the other hand, it, this time around, we do have leadership. And the leadership is coming from First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, who is our host outside the Blue Zone. In fact, the city of Glasgow is her constituency, and it's her people who are in Glasgow who are our hosts. And she, as the First Minister of Scotland, which is a country in itself with its own parliament and its own budget, has made a very interesting declaration that she is putting forward funding, one million pounds, for a loss and damage fund to help the victims of the impacts of climate change, recognizing Scotland has a historic responsibility because this is where the Industrial Revolution started. And Britain became a rich country because of that, but in the meantime also spewed out greenhouse gases which are now affecting the rest of the world. And she wants to take responsibility for that. And she's willing to put her money where her mouth is. And to me, that's leadership. And it's a challenge to all the leaders who are here in the Blue Zone and making speeches now as we speak to put their hands in their pockets and come up with some money as well. So far, they haven't. So is Nicholas Sturgeon the only politician that's come out to say we'll give you one million? Absolutely. And that to me is leadership. Yes. Let's see if Boris Johnson can rise to the occasion. And in terms of how much countries give, should that be linked to the population or the GDP? It doesn't really matter. At, the, at this moment, we're not asking for, you know, liability or compensation, which are words that are taboo. You know, they're afraid of that. We're just saying humanity, solidarity. Can you not put your hand in your pocket and come up with one dollar, one euro, one pound? So far, the answer is zero, by the way. We've been asking this question quite a long time. And we get the answer is we have zero dollars, zero euros for you. So what did actually happen? Because I saw a big hubbub of press and politicians running into the press zone. And I kind of followed by couldn't figure out what was going on and I knew... Well, the leaders are all here. Yeah. All right. So they're going to get five minutes of fame by giving a speech in the plenary hall. Many yeah. of them have done it already. They will have a photo opportunity with uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. That's really his number one agenda is having a photo with all the leaders. And then they'll fly away. Some of them might do press conferences. They'll talk about what they're doing mm -mm. and claim they're doing a lot. Um, they may be doing a lot, but they're not doing enough, and they all know that. Um, and then we'll be left for another two weeks to negotiate COP. All right? So as I told you before, this meeting is a COP. It's not a summit. All right? The people, the leaders who are coming are coming for a photo op. They're not coming to negotiate anything. They come, they make a statement, they have a photograph with Boris, and they leave. Once they're gone, we continue to negotiate. I think we would like to know more about the negotiations. People have already told me how amazing that it was hearing you explain COP and how it's the first time they ever understood it. Mm -hmm. So can you explain the negotiations now? Well, it's long yeah. and it's complicated and you'll have to listen to me for the next two weeks <laughs> well, we to will figure be. it out. <laughs> We're dedicated. <laughs> so the, the, the simple answer is, you know, the, the summit is a sucking oxygen out of what is going on here. Mm. All right. Uh, and the, the global press who are here 
for today will disappear tomorrow and think that it's over. Mm. It's not. It's just starting. Mm. It's going on for two more weeks. It's complicated. Mm. It's difficult. Mm. And so I would say any serious journalist has to stick through two weeks of figuring out what the hell is happening <laughs> and learning the language we speak, which we, we speak a very different language from the one that you are used to or your audience is used mm -hmm. to. You're going to have to explain to them what we are talking about. Loss and damage is a good example. Nobody, yeah. nobody knows what the hell that means. Mm. All right? We know what it means, but the rest of the public don't. So we're well, going to we have, have to explain it to them. We've literally just shared that. And so uh, hopefully Absolutely. this is a few people that know a bit more about Absolutely. what's important So the whole right point now. is take your audience up a learning curve. Mm. It's complicated. You cannot oversimplify it, you know. So right now it's being oversimplified to the extent of President Xi hasn't come. So does that mean Glasgow is a failure? All right. It doesn't matter if President Xi comes or not. The Chinese are here. They've been here for the last week in the pre-COP negotiations. They're going to be here for the next two weeks to negotiate. They come every year and they negotiate. They are here. Whether their leader has flown in for a photo op with Boris Johnson is neither here nor there. It mm -hmm. makes no difference. But the press are going to say, and they are saying, you know, I keep getting questioned by uh, media saying, well, if she's not coming, isn't it a failure? Does no. make any difference if she comes or not? What, um, what about uh, other negotiations in terms of getting us towards this 1.5? Well, that's where we are in a very bad situation. All right. So there are two major issues that uh, we all agreed to take action on in Paris six years ago. Um, and we are now going to review here in Glasgow. By the way, Glasgow is no new agreement negotiation. Mm -hmm. Just take, taking stock of where we are mm. with the agreement we had six years ago. And we are not in a good position. So the first one was we should stay below 1.5 degrees. As it happens, all the countries who have put in their plans, if you add them all up, are taking us to 2.7 degrees. Huge difference. We've got two weeks to get everybody to up the ante and, and, and enhance their emissions. But it's not good because yesterday in Rome, the biggest 80% of the emissions from the G20, the biggest economies, they're the ones who can make it happen. They didn't agree to do that. Mm. All right. So yesterday in Rome was the summit meeting, by the way. Mm. Glasgow is a photo op, not a summit meeting. It's a summit photo op, mm. not a meeting. In Rome, they met, they discussed, they did not agree. All right? And so we are not in a good fitting here. Uh, situation. The second big promise from Paris was the rich countries promised $100 billion a year from 2020 to help poor countries tackle climate change. They didn't deliver. 2020 is gone. We're near the end of 2021 when there should have been $200 billion available. Even that's not available. So what they've come to Glasgow with is a, a new plan to deliver in 2023, not even next year, but the year after next. That's a joke. You know, they have no credibility. And so they're arriving here, having reneged on their promises, expecting us to believe them. And that's going to be very tough. Tough sell. I can tell you the vulnerable countries are not in a mood to be uh, concessional at all. And why should you? <laughs> exactly. I mean, we've been lied to enough. Yeah. No more lies. Tell me this. What are we going to talk about tomorrow? Well, I, once we start doing the negotiations, there's a lot of very important details. Mm. Right? So there's something called Article 6, mm. which is on whether or not the business community can be brought in. 
uh, we had something called the clean development me mechanism under Kyoto, where you could buy and sell carbon reductions. So we have similar some sort of thing being designed for the Paris Agreement, where you can buy and sell reductions of carbon uh, emissions. Um, we haven't agreed on how to do that yet. That's an important element, unfinished business. On loss and damage, in the last COP, we agreed on setting up something called the Santiago Network on loss and damage. We didn't agree what how it's going to work. That's going to happen here. A lot of details. So the negotiations tend to be very detail-oriented, very complicated, very difficult to explain to the lay public, but important. And so um, for those of you who have the patience, you're going to have to get to learn a lot of jargon. We're going to become uh, experts, thanks yeah, to you. You have to. I think everybody in the world now is going to have to learn climate change and do something about it. Next, we'll move over to our part on the Green Zone and Fringe events to provide you with some inspirational content from around Glasgow. Hello there. It has been a long time and I'm so happy to see you and hear about all of your exciting adventures and activities and promotions around COP. I'd first of all like you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, hi everyone, I'm Kat. Um, I work for the uh, Stop Climate Chaos Scotland Coalition um, and uh, I am working specifically on our COP26 work and I've been sort of at it now for about two years. So this is a very exciting time for me. So you have been working on the on COP and the activities around COP for two years. You've been building up to this one momentous moment and it's arrived and it's on your doorstep. How are you feeling? Well, yes, it feels very much like the day of reckoning. I think um, how robust are our systems we've built? Have we got enough people to, to make it happen? Um, but I'm actually really quite excited now. I think I've turned the corner from kind of panic um, and I'm now into a sort of period of being a bit excited to see what happens. This is wonderful. <clears throat> I'm, uh, yeah, equally excited, but there's a, I feel a lot of energy in my body. This is like a, a big brewing pot of some kind of energy. Anyway, so great to have you. And I'd love to hear about all of the activities you've been organising over the past two years. So is there one that you'd like to kick off with or... Should I jump? I suppose um, Climate Fringe website would be the one to start with because it's kind of where all of our work is anchored. You can find out everything that's happening that we've been involved with on there, but also events from right across the movement. So there's actually 200 events on that website at the moment and more are coming up every day. And the idea is it's for people who are interested in getting involved in whatever way. Um, they're coming up to Glasgow or perhaps they're not and they want to see what's online available for them to watch. And you can find out what day of the week you, you want something to do and then just a massive list of different things that you can get involved in. And this is great because actually there's so much going on in so many different areas. It's very, very difficult to make your own programme for COP if, if you're there. So this is so helpful for us all coming and even not attending. Um the other helpful thing you're doing is the homestay network, which is essentially, a, a, I see it as a form of kind of couch surfing for people that need to be put up but can't be. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, so this is a, it's a, such an exciting project. Um, we've had quite good publicity about it recently uh, because apparently there's um, Airbnbs and hotels going up at uh, something like £1,500 a night for people. And, you know, we all know that COP is not about the groups that can pay £1,000 a night for accommodation. It's about those people who are coming from countries most affected by climate change. And we need to give them a space to stay. And so this is what the homestay is about. It's like if you've got a spare room, if you've got a spare couch, you put it up on the network and a an activist will come, we hope, and uh, and stay with you. So we, we've actually managed to get up to about a thousand people, but we're still looking for people all the way through to COP because we expect the big, um, most people to be arriving around the March, which is on the 6th, and the People Summit. So that's when we're really going to need the most people on the Homestead Network. That's amazing. And I don't suppose, is there any way that, that you're looking at who you're allowing into houses or is it just um, anybody can have a home and they kind of interconnect with themselves? So it's, it's peer-to-peer. So, you know, if you've got a, a spare room, you put it, your, your spare room and yourself and your, uh, you say a bit about yourself and you put it up on the web and then people will write a bit about themselves and they'll be looking around places and it's about connecting the right people to the right people, you know, people that share interests or perhaps, um, I mean, for example, we've had quite a lot of families where, like, young people have left home to go to university or something and um, they've kind of got their room. So I've talked to a couple of those and they seem to be really interested in hosting young campaigners in their 20s. Um, perhaps they're missing their children, like myself. My kids just left home, so, you know, Aww. got a spare room too. That's so cute. And it's um <clears throat> so it's about kind of interconnecting people who are like minded and making making friends and, and making a community around COP, which is fab. Um equally speaking of communities, I'm moving you on fast because we don't have much time and I'm sorry for that. But um this Adelaide place that you are hosting, um, and the Kayleys that you're hosting and yeah, can you tell us a bit about what we can expect? Yeah, so I mean, the the Climate Fringe has got so much activity on it, um, all organised, you know, out with our work, you know, this is all different organisations organising. But what we're doing is trying to provide a place where people can feel at home, can get a bit of a sense of uh, Glasgow as a place and Scotland as a place. Um, And so we're going to be running a cafe during the day where you can um, get uh, something to eat, get some tea and coffee and just sit in hot desk and then in the evening we will be running open mic Kayleys which are essentially a kind of gather around bring your stories your songs and your poems and step up to the mic so if you're interested you can find the information and sign up on the website um, and then in between those times there's going to be movement assemblies run by the COP26 coalition that are going to be reviewing where we are on the day um, what happened at COP today what activity needs to happen to change minds where do we need to put pressure so it's going to be a really happening place and would encourage everybody to come along there at some point during those two weeks sounds really fun and festive and i love the fact that it's kind of based on traditional scottish kayleys and the, the bringing the tradition of scotland into the hearts of people's lives can you tell us more about what you're doing so um a lot of people coming to COP will want to find places to meet, places to have events. And so we have partnered with community spaces, church halls across the city to offer up space to people to use. So we've got that on our website, it's called Space for Change. So if, if anyone's looking for um, a place to meet, have a look at that. And I, did, I didn't want to finish without 
sort of saying thank you to all the volunteers who are involved. Between us and the COP26 coalition, we have 1,400 volunteers, and many of those will be uh, helping on the march, helping on the People's Summit. So I would like to remind people to go along to those that are being organised by the COP26 coalition and um, say hi to any of our volunteers if you see them. Brilliant. That's so great. Yeah, thank you, everybody, for doing this for us. And it's just it seems like there's so much activity and fun things as well as protesting and the talking and the deep and gritty conversations that we're having. I think bringing this idea that we're all in this together and it can also be a fun time is also really great of you to do that. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was the wonderful Kat Jones from Stop Climate Chaos. You can find more information about them in our show notes as well as on the Stop Climate Chaos website. Uh, <laughs> Scratch it. Let <laughs> do this. Um, okay. Today is the second day of COP, and I'm really excited to be here with a bunch of inspiring activists and environmentalists, and I'm a part of the Arctic Angels delegation, and so I'm very excited to be raising awareness about what's happening in the Arctic. Hello. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Uh, I am really excited for this week. Yeah. Yeah. Um... First of all, before we go into the week and the next few weeks and I suppose the future as well, but can you give me a little introduction of who you are mm-hmm. and where you've come from and who you're with and what you're, what you're trying to say? <laughs> so my name is Alexandra Villasenor. I'm a 16-year-old climate activist and the founder of Earth Uprising International. I am from New York City and I'm from the United States uh, and I'm really excited to be here with a bunch of youth to share our message and push world leaders for power. And I guess there's a, there's a couple of things that I've been asked throughout this lead up into COP and I think one of them is a lot of people have been asking youth activists what gives us hope and that is a very strong question. But because of so many decades of inaction, the question almost is meaningless because I don't have a lot of hope in these type of conferences when it comes to what world leaders are going to do and what type of action they're going to take. And so what really gives me hope is the group of young people and activists all around the world. So activists are the ones that give me hope. And so because of them, that's what I'm looking forward to this week is being in in unity with all of them pushing for action. It is exciting, although the kind of the outcomes of the conference are petrifying because we already almost know that we're probably not going to get what we need nor want but um it is that dial being pushed of youth and people's voices that really need to be heard that are finally kind of coming up and being in the spotlight yeah does that feel intimidating for you that you are now almost in the spotlight i think that it's it's intimidating when you don't have a message to Mm. share But I think that when young people come here and when we know what type of action we want, then it's not intimidating because you have the opportunity to share your message to world leaders. And so I think that there isn't really that much that is intimidating when you are there just pushing and calling for a future. And so that's why I think that the movement has grown a lot is because of that power that we have when it comes to demanding for for action. And is your like the basis around 
the demand, the 1.5 degree mandate, or do you have other actions? I'm sure you do, but can you tell me more about the kind of demands that you're asking for? Uh, well, there's so many different movements out there that have different demands that they want to see. Me personally, one of the things that I want to see is I want world leaders to take action to reduce our global greenhouse gas emissions mm. to, in half and stay in line with the IPCC report. But then there's so many other things that I want to see them do. And in one, there's a couple in particular coming here, is I want to see a protection for activists who are protesting. Because right now there's so many activists who are risking their lives in countries just trying to get a safe planet. And so those activists should be protected and their rights should be upheld. And so we have a lot of those international activists here and their voices are the ones that are going to need to be heard. And then the other thing that I really want to see is actions taken to protect children's rights in particular. So I'm a part of a complaint called the Children versus Climate Crisis, where myself, Greta Thunberg, and 13 other children filed a complaint to the Committee on the Rights of the Child, stating that Argentina, Brazil, Germany, Turkey, and France were violating our rights by their inaction on the climate crisis. And so that was filed in September of 2019. And so we've been waiting over a year for a response about whether our case was admissible or not. And so a couple weeks ago, they replied to the merits of it, and they said that our case was inadmissible and it wasn't going to go any further. Because A, we need to go to our own countries first. And B, they said when you can prove that emissions are traveling from one state to another and harming children in other countries, then you can bring a complaint like this to them. Which they need to, they can go look at any scientific report out there, and there is, there is proof out there of that. And so... Right now, what that case did is it set a precedent that they don't care about children's rights at the moment, which means that we're going to have to do a lot more to make sure that they do uphold children's rights. And Article 6 on the Convention of the Rights of the Child, which is the most ratified treaty on the planet, states that children have an inherent right to life. And right now, climate change is violating that. So we need a lot more action in that area too. Right, right, right. And it is, it's this across borders, the, the accountability of countries saying how much they're how many emissions they're using and what they're what they're what they're claiming to reduce but actually you can't tell and it's and it's still how how can you trust what they're saying and what they're actually reporting Mm -hmm. so i completely understand that i wonder is there have you spoken to kind of climate lawyers who are working across the globe like client earth and and other places like that who could uh, help and support well, yes, so the people who are doing the Children versus Climate Crisis is Hossfeld LLC, and so they've been working with Earth Justice and a couple other groups to make sure that this goes as far as it can go. And right now, there's also so many other lawsuits and petitions that are starting up. There's one in Portugal now, there's one in Canada, there's one in Australia. And so all of these are really important because the climate movement, there's so many different actions that we can take to hold our world leaders accountable. And I think that law is another aspect that we have to that we have to start taking. And so we're finding every area we can to hold them accountable. And it's that it's exactly as you said, it's that set starting and making a precedent. Like the ecocide law has only just got their first case like, you know, um, filed and accepted and that's great that's good for humanity but it, we need to keep pushing these precedents and setting new ones and and really getting the ball rolling mm-hmm. 
Yeah, right now, every time that there is a lawsuit and they have a decision, whether it's for better or for worse, it does set that precedent. Mm. And so it's important that we keep pushing because every time they set a precedent that isn't good, it takes us a step backwards. And so that's why we have to constantly be reminding them that we're not going away. Mm. And so that's why it's exciting to see that there's still a huge youth presence at this COP, even though there is a whole pandemic. But it just shows that a lot of us are persistent and we're not going away. Of course you're not. And how yeah. dare they even imagine that? Um, so on that kind of flex, I want to know what the what you'll be doing over the next week or, or two and, yeah, the stuff you're excited about here. There is a lot going on. There's a lot of actions, and today there's even a march at 2, uh, and then there's the climate strike on the 5th, and then there's a global day of action on the 6th, mm. and then there's an indigenous walk of solidarity on the 7th. So there's a lot of convenings of people and the movement coming together. And then there is a lot of meetings going on this week. A lot of youth are going to be having meetings with those in positions of power to tell them what we want to see. So we're going to be tackling it from every area, inside and out, to try and get them to do something. Brilliant, brilliant. So who, so are you going to speak to some of the kind of more, uh, the, the leaders over the week You're, who are we allowed to know who you're going to speak to not yet really? but there's some exciting people that we're, we're planning to do I'm doing a lot of meetings with um, some people from the Biden administration though Amazing. I can't say that um, from the Department of Energy as well and so those are ones that I can talk about and I'm excited to see what the US is going to do and what role they're going to play because John Kerry is feeling quite confident and quite positive about what America are doing isn't he I think that, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, people here who are saying that, and uh, I think that there's a lot that the U.S. has planned to do, and so we have the most uh, progressive climate action plan that we've ever had before, and so it's just important that we also pay attention to our international policies, uh, because internationally, that's where we really get things we get things done is when every country is working together and so I'm excited to see what they do with that and so yeah there's a lot of meetings to see um, what's going to happen but it's good that they're confident because that means that we can push them even even Mm. further yeah totally it's going to be so interesting to see how we all feel and our reactions to actually the end of the week at the end of the second week and to what really comes out of this yeah I'm here for both weeks and I think there's a lot of youth who are here for both weeks and so we're going to be tired by the end of it I think a lot of people are we're already tired we're already tired and it's only just begun but I'm really glad that I'm here with a movement of people because we all support each other and Mm. get us through this entire long haul here because there's a whole other topic to talk about that is our you know the the climate anxiety and and the mental health that goes alongside this but we can save that for another day um I do have one final question, and if you have, if you want to say anything else, you're absolutely free reigns to say it. But um, if you could let people know one thing that they could do to be part of the fight, what would you tell people to do? There are so many things that people can do to take action, but I think the number one thing that I would tell people to do is to find their climate story. Mm. How are they being impacted by the climate crisis? Because after seeing wildfires in my home uh, hometown in California, after seeing wildfires all year round, that was a huge motivator for me. 
and being affected by that. And so once you find your climate story, then that can also lead into what type of actions you want to do. And so from there, find out what you want to focus on, whether that's direct action, uh, policy or law, uh, or any other aspect of it. And then join a movement of people. So that way you're you're with each, uh, each other and supporting each other throughout it. And so those are kind of like the three steps that I recommend. Your climate story, what are you passionate about, then get involved. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, people, empty words don't equal climate action. That's for real. Inside COP, they're just politicians and people in power pretending to take our future seriously, to pretending to take the present seriously the people who are being affected already today by the climate crisis. Change is not going to come from inside there. That is not leadership. This is leadership. This is not leadership. We say no more blah, blah, blah. No more exploitation of people and nature and the planet. No more exploitation. The media turns a blind eye to that in a state of anger, fear and panic, people act. We do not flee. We act. We will not flee. We will act. Because with each rising wave is our rising resilience and sense of urgency for justice, for hope, for us. We cannot eat coal and we cannot drink oil and I would really uh, love to learn from the indigenous leaders uh, what we really need to understand when we say we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground and to also learn uh, from them what loss and damage really is. As climate protesters gathered in central Glasgow on Saturday, world leaders met in Rome, and Greta Thunberg boarded a train in London heading for Scotland. Young people from around the world concluded the Conference for Youth, COI 16, at Strathclyde University with a closing ceremony and statement on climate action and justice. My name is Serena Bashel. I'm one of two programme coordinators for COI 16. And how's it gone? Um, it's been a rollercoaster of emotions, incredible, amazing, manic, nerve-wracking, just everything, all of the above. But most of all, it's also been one of the best experiences of my life. And we're about to have the sort of closing statement. How important is this? This is the pinnacle because this has been collected from thousands and thousands of youth voices from all over the world. And it's quite literally the youth voice to then input into the COP26 process. So it's, it's literally everything. 
Ashlyn Mulligan, one of the policy leads for COI 16. I think the opportunity to bring together more than 40,000 voices from around the world in a consultation process that feeds into the COP26 process is absolutely essential because youth are a fundamental stakeholder and it is incredibly important that their voices are heard in the negotiations. COP26 President Alok Sharma was presented with a copy of the statement prior to addressing delegates. Our lives are literally in your hands. This is our one chance and the unbelievable privilege to get to speak to someone who has so much influence in that process um, on behalf of so many people with such diverse experiences is, is an overwhelming and emotional experience. Well, I think they have uh, very clearly set out why it's so vitally important that uh, world leaders respond to uh, the climate crisis. Uh, and that is what I hope we're going to try and do over the next two weeks at COP26. UN Framework on Climate Change Conference Executive Secretary Patricia Espinoza also received a copy of the statement and was clearly very impressed. Well, I think this is great. I think the voices of the youth continue to make a difference. We really look forward to continue working yeah. with them. Do you think there are some lessons for the delegates as we go into COP26? Well, uh, you know, the spirit of solidarity and unity in their purpose, uh, I think that's, that's a good example. Hi, nice to see you. It was great to feel your energy on stage, particularly at the very end of your huge amount of research um, and bringing in your youth demands to one of the most important people of COP, right? And that must have been an emotional moment. Can you tell me who you are and what you've been doing for the past two, two years? Was it two? No, a year's worth of research. Um, so I'm, my name is Ashlyn uh, Mulligan and I'm one of the, I guess we're called what sort of policy co-leads at COI, but basically, uh, which is the Conference of Youth, and basically what that means is um, I've been part of the process of bringing together the Global Youth Statement, which has seen more than like 500 volunteers, which are like country coordinators from all over the world and regional coordinators who are working with them and then our team and then um, a team in Yungo to bring together uh, about 40,000 individual um, youth voices on what they are hoping to see from uh, the COP negotiations and how they want uh, their demands to be represented and brought into the um, not just the negotiations, but also the actions and the commitments of global leaders. And um, yeah, it's uh, a very emotional experience to read all of those inputs because it's, um, I mean, certainly an enormous privilege to get to read that, but also very unusual to get to an insight in, in the way that we have this evening to get an insight into very different lives and people who are ex experiencing very different realities right now um, 
and uh, so yeah, we've we've brought those together, and then many different, fifteen different groups of people have uh, written them into the form of a statement, um, and that was presented uh, on Saturday to Alok Sharma, and. Um, will I think tomorrow be presented in just in the form of like a QR code and like a one pager to all of the um, leaders at the World Leaders Summit. So two things. One, emotional for you, equally emotional for Alok Sharma, he shed a tear. Um, a, how did that feel? But B, what are in the one page kind of as much as you can summarize as possible, what were the demands? Um, oh my love, it's so emotional still. <laughs> um, very emotional because it feels like an absolutely enormous responsibility to try to be able to represent all of those different people, which I in no way am qualified to do. Um, but nonetheless, we're trying to make an effort to do that. Um, and really, really... Um, humbling or brilliant I don't know to, to actually see for a moment the humanity yeah um, in in someone who obviously through a political career and so on has been extremely well coached out of that I don't I, yeah, yeah I mean leaders many leaders um, have whatever systems around them they have that um reduce the possibility of real human interaction and um, it felt like when I was trying to express to him the enormity of the needs and the enormity of the task that he has that he actually acknowledged that Next up, music and climate. We are talking to musicians across multiple disciplines to gather inspiration and ideas. Hello, this is Hayden Thorpe for Inside Cop on Clydebilt Radio. Throughout the summit, I'll be chatting with remarkable fellow artists, gathering inspiration and ideas on how we tackle the climate emergency alongside some select musical offerings. For this first episode, I'll be chatting with one of the music industry's leading voices as it begins to face up to the climate crisis. You might know Faye Milton as the drummer in the formidable band Savages, but in 2019, Faye co-founded Music Declares Emergency, a group of artists, music industry professionals and organisations that stand together to declare a climate and ecological emergency and call for an immediate governmental response to protect all life on Earth. Their manifesto states that they believe in the power of music to promote the cultural change needed to create a better future. I couldn't agree more. I started by asking Faye how Music Declares first evolved. Yeah, well, it was um, 2019, actually. So it was just following the massive um, Extinction Rebellion springtime. They, they locked up London, they shut everything down, and it was really, really beautiful atmosphere. And I'd been sort of helping them get set up, creating video content and stuff like that, um, because one of a friend of mine was one of the co-founders. And when the actual rebellion happened, I had to go to um, Coachella, which was amazing. Of course, it's Coachella, great festival, California, one of the best places in the world. 
Um, and I was playing with a band called Let's Eat Grandma at that point. Um, I was watching everything unfold in London and, and how sort of beautiful and creative and amazing and revolutionary it all looked. And then looking around at Coachella and thinking, wow, okay, this is like super plastic. There's like product placement on stage. It's like really artificial. It's everything. It just felt like, okay, music is not running with the times here. Music's out of sync with where it needs to be in a sense, because there was no, it felt like there was just no recognition of the fact that there's a climate emergency, um, especially at a place like that. And as amazing as it is on one hand, it's also kind of like, a dream of sort of fantasy worlds. So when I got back, I got in touch with a load of other people. In fact, I met this amazing woman called Maddie who was running the XR stage and then Peter Quick and two guys called Tom, Tom Oakley, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy was um, plays in a band called Monochrome Set or had played in the band for quite a long time with them. Um, and Lewis, who does music PR, I'm, I'm not going to have to name check everyone, but um, we all just kind of, weirdly magically found each other through culture declares which is another um declaring uh movement who had already got the tape modern and, and huge institutions on board and theaters and we sort of used their model um and said look this is great but music needs its own space in this um so we did music declares emergency and i remember sitting there in the middle of marble arch saying to boy with a feather in his hair. I'm going to start music to class emergency. <laughs> he was like, cool, man. And so, yeah. And then it basically, it was like, an, uh, it was, people have been waiting for something like that to happen, which we soon find out when our tiny one little inbox got absolutely <laughs> flooded with people wanting to get involved or, you know, we had a huge response from the industry, all the major labels, beggars, all just like so many artists got on board to start off with. So yeah, it was it was waiting to happen. We just happened to be the ones who found each other and did it. And did it, they did. Music Declares became a platform for artists of all levels to express solidarity and concern for the cause. From Billie Eilish to Tom York to myself and artists like me who are in need of a group to fix our energies to. Personally, I've found that being a musician and an environmentalist can often create conflict between the needs of the job and the want to live in more sustainable ways. I ask Faye if she feels the same. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, with, with things like touring and stuff like that, the thing that people initially think of is, wow, artists fly everywhere. It's so consuming. But actually, show by show, um, it will obviously vary on the size of the show, but it's the audience travelling to the show on mass who actually create more emissions so if you then changed it to well the artist only stays in one place and then you can imagine fans traveling from all over the world to reach the artist which would just be um, an emissions nightmare so this is when i started to understand what systemic change means it's this kind of thing that's bandied around this this work we need systemic change and it's like yeah that sounds good what is it but it is like the whole system works in such a way that you can't win so that's when you need to sort of have a think about new ways of doing things and we had a really great um conference called climate music blowout a couple of weeks ago and um one of the things to come out of a lot of the panels was that a lot of what pollutes in the music industry is the extra things artists have to do around their music to get paid <laughs> which is the relentless touring it's um 
yeah, it's like creating tons of merch, which is obviously very polluting, like cotton and, and transporting it. Um, if musicians got paid enough for creating their music to live on and to, you know, to, to be able to do that, then maybe that's the best system. That's something that we should head towards. And I'm not pointing my finger at the DSPs or, you know, Spotify and such like I, I use them and it's brilliant, you know, free music for everyone, basically. Why not? It's that has its amazing side, but it's also like there could be a better system where musicians didn't have to do all this extra stuff. And believe you me, there's a lot of extra stuff to do. Faye and I both agreed that the real transformative power of music comes from the songs themselves and the unique quality they have of converting something that we know into something that we actually feel and are compelled to act upon. When we started Music Declares, a lot of us were from like the indie music world. And what we realised is that music is a lot bigger than the indie music world. So we've been, our current campaign is working with choirs and there's like two and a half million people in choirs in the UK. So we thought, wow, what a great network. And it really brings people's emotions together, brings communities together. Like, let's work with this network. None of us have any experience that some of some of our Peter Quick, for example, is um, a choir member and Gavin is as well on our team. But other than that, we were like, okay, this is new for us. So what we're doing with the choirs is creating the climate anthem people have been asking us for since we launched. Like, where's the climate anthem? And it's like we we drew upon What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong um, and took that to quite an amazing arrangement with um, Mark Delissa and an amazing, beautiful edit with all this like footage of nature and, and destruction to bring those ideas of nature and uh, environmental destruction into the feeling of this song. I did a podcast with Brian Eno the other day. I was like, Brian Eno points out. People give all their money to donkey charities because you look at a sad donkey and it just hits you right in the heart. And there's obviously nothing wrong with that. I mean, donkeys, come on, they look sad when they're happy. But, um, <laughs> but you know, you don't get the same with climate. You know, this picture of the sad world with a sad face on it, it's tangible, but it's, it all feels very kind of big and confusing. So what... One of, yeah, one of our big campaigns is to bring music in to sort of help make that emotional connection. And plenty of amazing music already exists in this space, so yeah. You can catch Music Declares Emergency at various events across the week in Glasgow, including the plate-up panel discussions brought to you by Blue Dot Festival and the Vegan Society, which I myself will be speaking at. Introducing Eno Insights. This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways to save the planet. A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Let's dive in. Episode on feeling. A lot of human decisions, in fact, a lot of the most crucial decisions that you make in your life, are made not on the basis of evidence in the sort of scientific sense or or education or 
reading or evaluation, not because we're stupid or lazy, but because you often cannot. You cannot do that in many cases. For instance, the people you find as your friends and spend your time with and as your partners and maybe your mates in the end, it's feelings that lead you to them. And why is that? It's, and it's, it's because there isn't much in the way of evidence. Um, you just don't know what somebody is going to be like in 10 years' time. You don't know who you're really talking to. It's, it's a sense that you have about them that you trust. But feelings have almost no place in science. And that's not to criticise science, but feelings are inherently hard to quantify, to measure, to compare, to even know if we're talking about the same thing. Like if I say I'm depressed, is that what you think? Is that what you mean when you say you're depressed? Is that the same? We don't even know that these things we call feelings are common to us all. So, so it's been left out of the picture. But of course, art is completely about feelings. Art is about how you feel about this experience you, you're having. And why is that important then? Why, uh, of course, one thing, sorry, I should have said prior to that, because art is about feelings, it is sort of seen as being outside of the zone of serious, discussable, measurable, quantifiable things. So we talk about art and science as being different because one of them you can quantify and the other you can't. And of course, we're a technical civilization, so we value the quantifiable much more than the unquantifiable. We can do something with that information. We can make things with it. We can build bridges. We can't build bridges with feelings, um, is the theory. Emotional bridges. Well, yeah, that's another story. Relationship bridges. <laughs> well, I don't want to go there. Okay. <laughs> um, that's metaphorical. And that's, that's slightly different. Um, but the question is, why do we have feelings? What point do they have? We all have them. Um, and I think we have them because feelings are the beginning of thinking. It's not that feelings are outside of thinking. They are the fundamental thoughts. The rest that follows, the, the more rational and the measurable and the assignable and a s sort of planable stuff that we do with our brain, is the stuff that follows feeling and is an attempt to act on feeling. What I think we're doing when we look at art, we're first of all rehearsing the ability to have feelings. That's also, that's very important to acknowledge that you can produce feelings. A lot of people get stuck with that. They can't even do that. They don't take them seriously, so they suppress them. So first of all, you have to recognize that you have feelings. Secondly, you have to recognize that that is how you make a lot of your decisions. And thirdly, you have to understand that feelings are where you digest things. So I have this saying, science discovers, art digests. Science helps you discover things about the world. You know that this material here can be heated to 406 degrees centigrade and will turn into something else but it doesn't ever tell you how to feel about things or what use those, that knowledge is in terms of your being, your personality, your life.
So to digest things, you need art. You need to see those experiences embodied within a life's a narrative of some kind, inside a story. You know, the surveillance, take, take the idea of surveillance. We all know that it exists and that you can uh, put cameras in lavatories or kitchens or wherever you want, and you can watch people. That's a scientific fact, and it's about a, a scientific technology. But what do we think about that? How do we feel about that? Well, then you need books. You need 1984, or you need films like Minority Report, or you need, you need ways of seeing what life would be like with this new thing added. It's not just to say, oh, it's great to have this new thing. That's not good enough. You've got to see what kind of life do we then have with this new thing. And I think, um, I think that's what art does for us. Mm. It gives us a way of understanding other lives we could be lead leading or may well end up. Hello, my name is Regis, I and I'm a volunteer for Climate Fringe Stop Climate Chaos Scotland. And Climate Fringe is a website where we upload information regarding events happening around Glasgow during COP26. And these include official events as well as civil society events. And we're essentially just a free open space for people to upload their events and for their voices to be heard during this climate conference. Some of the events that are going on are Open Mic Cayleys at our very own Climate Fringe Hub in Adelaide Place. They happen every day of the week, so and they are a place for open discussion and performance. They're a safe space, so please come on down. We would love to have you there. Um, other events include Urban Growing Doors Open Day, Listening to the Land, Indigenous Voices at COP26, Dancing Our Prayers for COP26, and Truth Mandala, Work That Reconnects. All of these events, they broadly fall under the category of arts and culture, community gardening, civil society events, basically, their social events. Um, and further information about these events are available on our website, climatefringe.org. If you go on the website, you'll have the ability to sign up to our daily newsletter, which has all the information you could ever need about events at COP26. So that's me with a daily update on what's happening around Glasgow in during COP26. Kat Jones from Stop Climate Chaos, Alexandria Villa Senor, Arctic Angels, Coy, Freddy's for Future, Stop Cambio, Jonathan Levy, Alok Sharma, Ashlyn Mulligan, Shireas Ragaram. Thanks to Brian Eno for his insights. Thank you so much to Hayden Thorpe, who spoke to Faye Milton. And thanks for the songs from Hot Chip, Cosmo Sheldrake, and the Kingdom Choir. Oh,
的。